Hi, welcome back to the Wheeler Centre. You're listening to another episode of The Fifth Estate. Without further ado, let's hear from our host for the series, Sally Warhaft, to tell you more about today's guest, David Gonski. Uh, He describes himself in his book as a reasonable corporate advisor who's been involved in many business transactions over the years. Well, I think that's a little bit modest, David. (laughs) He's best known, of course, probably to most of us for his review into Australian schools funding, the Gonski Review. Um, But he's also one of Australia's most experienced and respected businessmen. He's the chairman of boards including the AZ Bank, Coca-Cola Amatil and the Sydney Theatre Company. He is the Chancellor of the University of New South Wales, where both he and his father attended. So please give this reasonable corporate advisor a very warm welcome. David's uh, published a a book, a collection of his speeches on uh, all areas of of his working world and some reflections of his personal life. He's called it, I Gave a Gonski. (laughs) We're all here because we give a Gonski too. (laughs) Not many uh, people have their name turned into a noun, I suppose, (laughs) David. How does that feel? Um, well, look, I wasn't a willing participant, I have to be honest. It was uh, the choice, I think, of the relevant teachers' union. Uh, they asked me afterwards. But actually, I, I, as I look back, I'm actually very uh, complimented that they chose my name. It's quite interesting. Uh, today would have been the 96th birthday of my father. Unfortunately, he died before I finished the review. And I would have loved to ask him if he was happy. Uh, as a brain surgeon, he probably would have said, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he was a remarkable man, your father, and you, you return to him time and again in your, in your speeches in, in the book. Um, and he was obviously somebody that cared deeply about education. His father, I think, was in, in the rag trade. Is that, is that right? I, I think to call my grandfather in the rag trade is probably saying a higher vocation than he had. I mean, being quite blunt, and I say that in the book, um, education in our family has made an amazing impact. Um, My grandfather used to kid me that he spoke five languages all badly. He wasn't uh, a great reader, but on the other hand, he was a very clever man. I'm pretty sure of that. Mm. And he used to trade linen door to door and was a very poor immigrant to South Africa when my father was 10. Um, But he put a lot of his money into my father's education. And Dad, being a brain surgeon, when we came to Australia when I was seven, I cannot say that we had a poor sort of and humble start. Um, There wasn't uh, brimming money to start with, but we had this wonderful trade, this great education, and he was needed. Six Gonskis emigrated to Australia in 1961, Jewish family from South Africa, Um, and it was a formative experience. In fact, now listening to you speak, I can still hear a touch of the South African accent, which I hadn't picked up on in all the times I've heard you speak uh, before. Everybody in Australia was a lot whiter than they are today. Indigenous people couldn't vote. 
Um, and yet you and your family and your mother particularly had this great optimism about Australia. I wonder though in what ways that has disappointed you. That's a very good question. I mean, I make the point in the book very strongly that we came with an attitude, being blunt, that South Africa had disappointed us, that apartheid was the wrong policy. My mother particularly felt that, and I agreed with her. And when they were not admitting black people, as we call them there, to Cape Town University, she just wanted to go. And Dad, being pragmatic, followed her, along with the four of us. Um, <laughs> What does it make me feel? It's interesting, as I researched what is basically chapter one of the book, uh, I was quite amazed at how blind I had been. I mean, I started when I was studying law at the university uh, to realize that perhaps all that we'd been sort of thinking of when we came here, that it was all wonderful, everybody was equal, we didn't have apartheid, we had opportunities for so many, as I slowly started delving, I found out that wasn't true. Um, did it upset me? I have to admit, not particularly. It should have, but it didn't. I mean, I love this country. This country has been absolutely marvellous to my family and I hope now to my children. Um, so it really can't do much wrong. So I, in answer to your question, I don't know that I'm disappointed. I'm probably more disappointed in myself that it didn't mean as much as it should have. Mm. You just uh, mentioned your university studies, a Bachelor of Law and uh, Laws and, and Commerce. Absolutely no sport for you. Absolutely. Uh, part of the reason you chose the University of New South Wales over Sydney, which was very unusual in your day. Um, somebody of your credentials would have gone straight to the, the ivory tower, but you, you chose New South Wales, partly because of your father and that lovely link that you're now the, the Chancellor. You talk about those years being a period of awakening and um, it's exciting reading that. It made me wonder whether you think it is even possible for a young person today to have that kind of awakening experience at university or has it all become just so professionalised uh, and career-oriented that that is perhaps not as possible? Oh, it's a wonderful question, Sally. I think my answer to you, particularly as a Chancellor of a major university, is I hope they can have that. They should have that. The thing that, you know, a lot of people talk about the coming of computers and how universities will disappear and we'll have MOOCs, as they call them, and we'll all be sitting at home doing degrees, you know, from Transylvania or something rather than from Melbourne and so on. I don't actually think that's going to happen. I think the great universities, and Melbourne University is one of the great universities, and I hope mine is too, um, will improve and must improve their student experience. And part of the student experience is the awakening that you talked about. I mean, for me, I was the second year to go through the law school at the University of New South Wales. And yes, there was pressure on me to go to the other place. In those days, it was Sydney. And we didn't even have proper lecture theatres. We studied under a tree, which I have demanded remains. <laughs> the, the old buildings have gone, but the tree is still there, and they can chop it down when I'm no longer Chancellor. Con conservationist as well. Exactly. The one tree left. <laughs> um, but 
sitting under that tree with the most superb teachers in small groups, discovering thought processes, which, you know, I think started at school but really got going at a law school. And now I see my business school at our university has got what's called flip classrooms. It's the same thing. And if we can make that happen, I think we'll be awakening a lot of people. We're going to come back to education in this uh, discussion, but the, the, the book that you've written is, I mean, it touches on so many areas of Australian life. There's, there's speeches on being a chairman and uh, business and, and all, all manner of things. But it seemed to me that the book as a whole, there were three themes that just came back again and again and again. The most obvious to me was your... Um, insistence and uh, it seems to be a real thing of yours that people not be narrow in in their own selves and in their experience of of of, of work that specialization is fine but not at the experience of 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 narrowness and you really admire the system in the u.s where business provides advice to politicians um, where business people can enter Politics. There's a lot more of uh, toing and 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 froing, and um, you even you talk about a beautiful anecdote with a. a it's funny you should mention the tree actually with a, a walk with Arthur Boyd, and you. This was an experience for you of awakening to to not being so specialised that he taught you the different shades of green, and that you needed to be more observant in your life about other things. So, tell us a bit about this not being narrow and why it matters so much to you. I will do that. Just before I do it is one of the things, by the way, if you're ever putting together your speeches, is you get this alarming thing that you do repeat yourself. So I'm just worried you picked it up because I tried to actually take that out. It wasn't repetitiveness. It wasn't. It was more subtle than that. It was my reading of oh, your well, great it worked. work, David. It worked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Narrowness, I think, it's something, it's quite interesting. If you look at the word, the etymology of a word, education, it's to lead out. And the interesting thing is that the more education you get, it seems to me you go the opposite way. Now, I'm not against specialisation. I think, you know, being a specialist in something is absolutely marvellous. But if you believe you are the expert in that, there's a lot of dangers. Firstly, you become immodest. Secondly, you don't see what's going on just across the, the way from where you are. Your contribution is much more limited than it should be. And finally, as a person, I think you're not a true person. And I always tell the students, and I've done 240-something graduations, so I've had 60,000 graduates go through you know, my shaking hands and so on, and I always tell them the same story, but I just jazz it up a bit to make it a bit different. And the story basically is that my specialty as a lawyer was in two words in a particular section of a particular act. And I built my practice on those words. They happen to be very important for takeovers. If I'd dwelt on that, I'm sure I would have been a great specialist on it, but I would have been an awfully boring person. And I wouldn't have understood all the people involved in the corporations that I was merging. I wouldn't have realised what I was doing to people who were employed there. I wouldn't have had the fun of seeing art as you talked about with Arthur and so on. So I implore them, be specialists, but have an open mind. And let me tell you, I've seen awfully arrogant people 
who are particularly expert in minuscule things. And I always say to them, go down and watch a ballet dancer or something like that, because they can do that better than you, <laughs> and remember that. What were the two words, just by the way? <laughs> Substantially lessening. <laughs> Sorry you asked. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second uh, thread, and, and it, it, this is not about repetitiveness, because the you know, good people at Penguin would have taken that out for you. It's, uh, it, you relate these things, uh, these themes that I'm talking about to your own life, to your work, but also to Australia um, and the, the various worlds you encounter there. Short-termism, and you, you see it everywhere in government, in education, in everything. And you say, I quote for Australia, short-termism abounds not only in politics but in the world of business too. Everyone is impatient for results. Um, and um, I'm sure we all see the truth in that and I, I, I'm sure everybody wonders how could we stop that short-term thinking in Australia, I mean, in government in, uh, and in, and in business, business too, how can you project forward? Well, it's interesting. Firstly, that was the bit, by the way, that I was worried I did repeat. But I believe it very strongly. Um, you know, one of the biggest arguments I had when I sat on a board in Singapore was with the chief executive. It was my job to negotiate his salary he wanted less than I was offering. I'd never had that before. And I asked him, why won't you take what I think is right? And I had reams of paper from experts that said this is the right standing for him because he said in the long term, it'll be wrong for this company. It shows that I'm prepared in a bad time to take a big growth. I would rather demonstrate to the people that I'm there for the long term. I've never forgotten it. That man uh, retired from there and went on to even higher service as they do in Singapore. But it struck me, his vision was not just for himself. It was a broader thinking. It wasn't that, by the way, he didn't believe in money. He liked to have money, but he wanted to do his service as well. He wanted something bigger. I don't know how we teach people about long-termism, but for the one thing that as I get older, I realise it might be the responsibility of those who are a bit older to sort of say to the younger people who are wonderful today that if you want more in life, think about where it could take the country. Think about a longer term thing than just next week. And with social media and so on, there is a movement towards short termism, but you can't just blame it on that. It's our whole thinking. And I'm very strong that we should do that. You seem to suggest, though, that we're particularly stricken with it in Australia. I think we are. I think even in America, and I've just been in America a week ago, the, the people, for example, in Silicon Valley... They'd never are building ask for dreams. They're building dreams. Mm. Um, you know, I thought they'd all be wanting to list their companies and become richer than Bill Gates and all that. I was wrong. I went and talked to a lot of the younger people there... They have a vision, and it is a vision basically to change the world. By the way, whether it's to change for the better, I'm not sure. That's a different question. <laughs> but they are looking much more long-term than we are. One of the things about Australia 
is that we live in a land of plenty. We do. Not everybody has plenty, but we have plenty as a, as a nation. And I think that is something that means we don't have to plan so much. When you go to a nation maybe like Singapore, city-state, they didn't have proper water. They were worried they were buying water from the Malaysians. How do they make sure they continue to have it? So they have to plan. So over 10 years, they've now got plenty of water all of their own. The third thread of the three uh, is, is the idea of uh, giving something back, of philanthropy. And this, again, in Australia is not particularly common. Um, you are a philanthropist and uh, it's quite a, a sort of a, I, I see it as a much more American uh, style of, of, of giving. And in fact, you, you say in the book um, that you know, rich Americans give 10 to 15 percent of their income routinely. It's almost expected. Um, in Australia, it's less than 3 percent. And as a philanthropist, it's something that's given you a great deal of joy. There's a lovely story about a project the wayside at the Wayside Chapel in King's Cross that your foundation uh, built, um, and you, you describe the joy that it gives you as an individual. How, though, do you, you build an expectation in a culture uh, that giving should be a part of it? Well, it's quite interesting. I, I think that what you've got to do, it's like everything. When you're selling, uh, say this with Penguin in the Room, books or whatever, you've got to um, sell the book. You can't just say, here's a piece of paper or a set of papers, mm. buy it. You've got to be able to sell your product. And I actually think with philanthropy, it's the same thing. What I've discovered is if you do have the ability, now there are many people who don't have enough for themselves, so I'm not suggesting that everybody has to do it. But let's say you've made enough. There is an extra asset you can buy. It's a joy, and that is by sharing. And by the way, as a philanthropist, at least so far, you don't have to give it to a particular cause. You can decide which cause you like. So I feel very strongly we should be extolling the virtues of it, how much fun it is, how you can actually do something and leave a message. I mean, I, as you will have noticed in the book, I often ponder, and people can say, well, it's a bit egocentric, but I ponder on how many letters my children will get on my death. And I've got boxes of letters on the death of my father, all say the same. Either he saved my father, he saved my uncle, he saved me, or whatever. That's what brain surgeons do. Mm. I have the ability, as a businessman, as a merchant banker, as a lawyer, not to save people's lives, but to contribute to something. And I think either if you believe in legacy, which some people do, some don't, or if you want another joy, and a joy I think better, in my opinion, than climbing Mount Everest, something I'm never going to do, or indeed, for that matter, getting a hole in one, which I'll never get. Um, you can have that if you do it. And by the way, the other rewards are, in my opinion, that if those who have don't show signs of sharing, and I'm not showing a communistic thing here, I'm being realistic. If we don't do it, I think there will be social machinations over time. Because as people get richer and poorer, the only thing that can bring them together is the beneficence of those who are rich. Mm -hmm. 
You helped change the tax laws with uh, when John Howard was Prime Minister. He appointed you to, to do that, to make giving simpler for the rich um, and, uh, and, and uh, less expensive too. Um, you also included uh, philanthropy in the Gonski report, which uh, I think got very little attention, that, that part of it, that idea of um, setting up funding for schools through philanthropy. Um, I wondered how much traction that particular idea ever, ever got. Well, look, firstly, just dealing with the uh, John Howard thing, he did put through a lot of it. and wasn't just for the rich. It, it assisted those who weren't so rich. For example, uh, workplace giving was one of the things he was prepared to do, which made it easier for those in salaried positions to give and get the benefit of a tax deduction immediately rather than waiting 18 months. And you are right, by the way, in your earlier comment, the giving in Australia by most people is the same as in America. The difference is the giving by the rich in America is greater than in Australia. Mm. Uh, back then to, I even remember it, recommendation 41 of, my, of our report, basically that was enacted. And the concept was that an entity be established to allow one to donate to particularly government schools and secondly, an entity be established, same entity, that actually helps government schools to raise money. And so was born Schools Plus, it's called. It's got a wonderful board. They're very active. I think, if I may say, I know this is not confidential, but watch the space. They're, they're doing things. To the credit of the past government, the Labor government, they gave a, a small sum, but they gave some money to it. And to the credit of this government, they could have stopped it, but they let it go through. So that recommendation has been enacted. I think they've got every chance of being successful, and I would hope that I would like to help them to do that. Well, we will watch that space. I've always found it rather sort of odd that the biggest fundraising opportunity most state schools have is polling day, when you can buy a <laughs> sausage or a tea towel if you're lucky. You were asked to chair the Gonski Review in 2010. It was already five years, incredible. And you delivered it in 2011. Julie Gillard was the education minister when that all happened. How far are we today from the equity and the excellence that you strived for in, in your recommendations? Well, I think a lot of people say and you know, I'm not altogether against it, but they say that our recommendations weren't enacted. The fact is they were. The essence of what we said was really threefold. The first was that you should fund on a needs basis. That is pretty well enacted throughout Australia and California, by the way, but we're not talking about that. They've um, nicked it, have they? they? They took it, yeah. I'm delighted. Um, but. In Australia, most state governments and territory governments have based their funding now on a needs basis, which was not the case pre the 2011 review. The second thing was that we came out with the concept that there should be partnership 
between the Australian government and the state governments in how monies are given, which was not the case previously. The Australian government gave money to the non-government schools and the states picked up the tab effectively for the government schools. That's been affected. Now, whether it'll pass 2017, because as you know, the agreements uh, have a review date then, but that has been affected. The third one, which as I say in the book, perhaps was a little bit of arrogance by me, and particularly me, even though I had a first-rate review team, I think it was my decision, we had worked out the numbers so well that I thought, well, let's tell everybody mm. what it's going to cost to bring Australia up to our assumed level of aspiration. And that was $5 billion extra. And that's where the hiccup started, and that's where basically the discussion went. And you regret publishing that figure I regret now. publishing the figure because I think, you know, it's the old thing that if I give you the cake mix and leave out the egg, you'll conclude you baked a cake. If I give you the egg as well, you'll think you've got my cake. Mm. And I think what should have happened is people should have worked upon, well, here's this needs basis. Governments of Australia, territories and states come together. We've got this concept of helping the disadvantaged. Um, now, what's it going to cost? Well, let's work out our scheme of doing that and then we'll come to it. But instead, because we had such a wonderful team, we'd, we had modelled every school in Australia, all 9,000 whatever. So we were able to tell you, arrogance, whatever, someone determined, namely me, that basically we should do that. And the committee agreed in fairness, and of course that's where everybody got excited. Well, everybody gets very excited in Australia when something's going to cost $5 billion. I mean, even if it means totally revolutionising our entire education system and, and making it fair say, and equitable. Yeah. But it's $5 billion extra to $1 billion a week. Exactly. And so, it also you know, was an adjustable amount. This was exactly. your suggestion. It didn't mean that it couldn't be wriggled for a little less or indeed a little more. So, I mean, I thought that it was a, a classic example of, you know, the Australian media and our political argy-bargy totally missing uh, the point. And although I'm not sure that had you not published it, somebody would have done their own arithmetic anyway and one of them would have come up with five. One of them probably would have got it right, David. So it, it would have been just as uh, um, a much obsession on it. But it... It did take something away, didn't it, from the, 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 the study of the detail uh, of what you were suggesting. Now, the current situation now, as I understand it, is that uh, in the, the budget in 2017, it's going to be uh, funded until then, the, the, the Gonski report will be enacted until then, and then it will revert to an uh, uh, indexation system. So whatever funding each school is getting at that point will increase according to indexation, which takes away any changes that have happened in each school in that time, any subtlety. Uh, again, it just goes back to a rigid system uh, that has nothing to do with what you proposed. Is that... Well, I think that's a summary. I mean, the first thing I'd say is you're talking about the federal funding. Yes. So it's the feds have said uh, up to 2017 we'll pay a bit because remember it was a six-year deal that was done. 
the bulk of federal increases actually came in the last two years. Yep. Um, the states signed up, or most of them did, some didn't, but most of them did. And in the case, say, of New South Wales, which is very gratifying to me because that's where I live, they implemented every bit of our report. Amazing. You know, the Farrell, Baird governments, they uh, have put it in. Now what will happen, if it goes this way, is that at the end of 2017, the feds, as you rightly say, will stop and index from there, rather than making the payments that were envisaged. Now, it's up to state governments whether, A, they continue, which in the case of New South Wales, they've got it all in place already, so they've, I think they're going to continue their, their payments, which would be great. You know, I won't be completely consigned to the dustbin. And what about uh, happy Victoria here? Well, Victoria, as you probably know, is looking into it right now. And I take my hat off to them, good on them for having a good look. And if things have changed, which I don't believe they have, in fact, I think some of the things we said were actually quite prescient for what's happened, as you rightly say, in the last four years. But they should have a good look. But I hope they'll follow New South Wales. I strongly believe that this concept of elevating those who suffer educational disadvantage will produce enormous things for Australia. And one of the things I, I should mention, which I didn't mention in the book because I didn't know it at that time, one thing I came back from Silicon Valley believing is that those who don't have an education and are unskilled are in real danger with the technology that's coming because robots, whatever it be, will open doors, will do the vacuuming and so on. What we need to do is to educate all, and that way we'll be more productive and they will have wonderful lives. You don't, uh, you, you obviously not, you don't describe yourself ever as an educator and you're very clear about that and you don't say a lot about teaching and so on in, in these speeches but one of the, the points you did make that, that um, really stayed with me was, was that we're not always actively encouraging our students in schools to really think well, and I think you give the um, example of science that that students are not until they're in year eleven or twelve that they're given real science problems to to actually look at that up until then they're told how to think um, rather than ra rather than actual thinking. Um, how how big a problem is that? Well, I think the first thing I should say is I'm not an educator. And I don't apologise for not putting in the review things about how to teach and whatever. A, it would have been preposterous for me to do that. But B, the terms of our reference asked us to look at funding, not at teaching. And, you know, lots of people suggested this was a deficit of our review and every single one of them obviously didn't read the terms of our reference and probably didn't read our report either. Not, not many people did, by the way. Um, one thing I do say in the book is I am in absolute awe of teachers. I think it's the most marvellous profession. I think it can change lives. When I was giving a lot of speeches in 2012, after the release of our thing, I used to go to gatherings like this and say, put up your hand whose life has been changed by a merchant banker like me. <laughs> And only one person in all of the meetings I went to stuck his hand up and, and he shouted out, 
I'm putting up this hand for my wife. She divorced me and I'm a merchant banker. <laughs> but then the next question is obvious. Whose life has been changed by mm. a teacher? And everybody mm. puts up their hand. My life's mm. been changed. And one of the things that came out of my report was I went and found that teacher and I'm absolutely absurdly upset that it took me 40 years. Fortunately, he was still alive, still is actually, at 86. And I went and thanked him. And he, he started crying because I don't think he was used to that. And the point I'm making is teachers change lives. And I think good teaching is absolutely marvelous. Coming now in a long-winded way back to your question, the question of thinking. I am worried that we are being taught to, as one teacher called it, memorization. I think having a good memory is wonderful and I don't have it. But I do think that being able to analyze is a better trait. And I think with iPads and you know, the ability to go to computers these days, you can get the facts. But to analyze whether that speaker or that writer or that blog is correct is the thing we need to educate. And I hope with science thinking, you know, and I do believe STEM needs to be pushed more, um, I think we can do great things. And, that's, and the, by the way, there's a joy in that because memorizing things, I remember, I'm sure all of you do, memorizing poetry. I loved poetry, but I hated memorizing it. And funny enough, the poems I really loved, I did remember. Mm. But when I had to stand in front of class and memorize them, it was hopeless. Analyzing was the joy, whether it be history or, or science. It was just marvellous. Mm. You had a, a, a rare insight into our schools uh, in being able to visit, I think, about 30 of them. Tell us about your, your impressions of, of the differences between schools in Australia. Well, let me tell you, I, I'll, if I may, I'll take one area. There's Villawood in Sydney. That's in the western suburbs of Sydney. There's a big, uh, um, you know, a lot of the asylum seekers were placed there and so on. So there's a great educational disadvantage there. I visited the primary school there in the north of Villawood. Wonderful, wonderful headmaster. And by the way, principals, there was not one that I dealt with, and I actually went to 38 schools, that I didn't admire. Some I didn't like, by the way, because they were pushing me to things, but mm -hmm. all of them I admired, because mm. they were doing marvelous things. He walked through the school with me, which was not, in terms of the ambience of the building, magnificent. But his problem was truancy. He couldn't get the kids there at nine o'clock, and he certainly couldn't keep them till three in the afternoon. This is primary school. The turnover of the school was 67%. This is a, a school from kindergarten to sixth class, 67%. You'd expect it to be somewhere about 15 to 16. So it was quite thing. So I said to him, how do you get the parents to help you? And he said, the only way I can do it is to appeal to the mothers, and I have to get them in here quietly because the fathers don't like them coming here quite an indictment. I then walked from there down to, uh, I think it's called Santa Sabina, which is another primary school in the same area, in fact in a worse area, which is a Catholic school. So I said to the headmaster, another impressive man, by the way, beautiful building, 
Um, the fees are very low because there's educational disadvantage. I said, how's the truancy here? Being an expert, I'd just been to the school next door. <laughs> he said, we don't have any. I said, what's truancy? He was teasing me. Everybody comes here. I said, what is the difference between this school and the one up the road? He says, all my kids want to be here and their parents want them here. And I was amazed what they were doing. They had a little orchestra. I must say it was a terrible orchestra. But uh, they were wonderful. Every one of the kids, one of the kids gave us a dissertation on the history. I think it was Lachlan Macquarie. It was wonderful. He was an outstanding principal. His staff were wonderful. Up the road, great principal. Quite a lot of um, problems with the staff because when he lost a staff member, he couldn't replace them. But the biggest problem he had was getting the kids in on time and getting them to stay. It's sad. And I don't know, is there any amount of funding that can change that? Oh, I think so. And by the way, it's not, as some have put it, to make the buildings beautiful. I mean, I went for a large part of my schooling to an independent boys' school, which is probably one of the finest in Australia. I was chairman of it for many years, so I have to say that. But the buildings there then, not when I was chairman, were pretty basic. But what was wonderful was the spirit, the feeling of learning, the tradition of learning. And I think with help, with a bit of, he needed more staff because he had a lot of people he couldn't replace. He was telling me exactly what he could do with the extra money. And I do want, and I'm not on the payroll of the New South Wales government, but uh, Mr Pickley, Adrian Pickley, who's the education minister, when he heard me tell somebody else this story, went out to that school and he found out exactly how much, as he called it, extra Gonski money they got and what they're doing. And he tells me, he gave me the whole thing. And I was pretty excited. Mm. And he invited me to come out and I will. Unfortunately, Mr Wong, who was the headmaster, died before I published uh, the review, but I wanted to go out and deliver it to him because he was an amazing person. Maybe just a little bit extra for that orchestra. <laughs> no, the orchestra's down at the Excellence School. Oh, OK. All right. All right, well, they maybe need a little bit too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you talk a lot about culture, it, also our political culture and our education culture, your culture, uh, but also corporate culture. And you've had some great mentors, you've worked around and with some remarkable people. Frank Lowy um, is one of them. Uh, tell us a bit about corporate culture in Australia and what distinguishes it from other countries. Look, firstly, I think, and this may amaze people, I would say to you, and you may say it, uh, of course I'd say it, but I believe it, the culture in most corporates in Australia is actually quite good that people want to do things, they come to work keen to succeed and so on. As I said earlier, I think all of us suffer in our culture looking short term when we should look long term. I think that we punish people if they don't take risk. I'm sorry, if they do take risk, which in America, you know, you know there's a club in America which has got quite a lot of members, I don't know exactly how many. You've got to be a billionaire to be in it, but that's not the tricky bit. You've got to have been a billionaire previously and gone bankrupt, bankrupt yeah. and then become a billionaire. It's much more forgiving of failure more in America. Forgiving. We expect, it? or they expect in America, that people take risk 
And, you know, they try and achieve. Here, if you take risk and fail, you're dead. I don't think that's the right culture. Obviously, if you do tricky things, like you steal somebody's money or you misrepresent things, that's bad. But if you're just trying a new idea, you want water to travel uphill and it doesn't, you might really contribute to society because somebody else might make it go the extra yard. So I think in our culture, we need to take a bit more risk. Not excessive risk, but a bit more risk. And by the way, what comes with that is we must also understand risk, understand how we can mitigate risk, which we're learning to do, but we need to do more of. And finally, I think, we need to nurture the young in business to have that sort of gleam in their eyes right through their careers. Because I think sometimes we bash them about, that, doesn't, that sounds a bit physical, but we put them in a particular box and we don't nurture them upwards. And particularly, I might say, females. I think we have to nurture you know, the 50-odd the percent who come along and get to a certain grade and then somehow leave the workforce. They don't need to. They can come back and they should be encouraged to do so. You uh, write, specifically, um, uh, there's a speech on, uh, on women and gender diversity and you were surrounded in your life by very strong and successful women, your mother, your wife, Orly, who's a, um, a very, P- very distinguished doctor. Yeah. Uh, and you, you advocate a lot more flexibility for women, uh, for their hours they work, for the job descriptions, allowing time off for family, um, and mapping out career paths that aren't necessarily the same mapping as men's. Which, you know, it just sounds so great when you read that and you're a woman and, gee, you've suddenly got a couple of kids and you're feeling the stress of having to be back at work um, perhaps earlier than you'd want to be. The problem is that these things, they never really seem to happen. <laughs> um, people talk about them as a good idea, and but but I would think that the reality of, you, you know, you say that, that a woman should be able to be positioned to return to work and scale the heights that their talents permit. It just doesn't happen. That job has been taken, usually by a bloke. So how can you really well, change can I that say, culture? When, when you say it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen in business. It doesn't. But you know something, and this is where I've been very, um, I suppose, excited to see. When I go to the children's hospital, where my wife works, I mean, my wife and I had three children, but like a typical male, basically. I think I was modern and so on, but she took the brunt. If a child was sick, somehow he went to her rooms or she went to her rooms and so on. She did it and still does it, even though they're 30 years old. She still looks after them. (laughs) But the fact is that the bosses of that hospital, the people like her, she's head of her department, they didn't step back. They kept going because they had, firstly, people who'd done it before, So her mentor indeed had gone that way. It was something that people could see was achievable and it was acceptable. We have a lot to learn in business, but let me tell you, it's happened in medicine. I think you're right about medicine, actually, but I think you've singled out one of the very 
few and and then the rejoinder to that would be that well nursing you know how many nurses actually would be doctors uh, if if uh, if if their circumstances had been more supported or mm. you know but i have to say mm. i mean i watched with great joy even though it was at the wrong university as far as i'm concerned my daughter becoming a doctor and i happened i love numbers and i would say in her year 65% were women yeah. And I know the six of her close friends. I know where they've gone. They're all specialising. Now, you know, some may say, when your daughter's 30, should she be thinking of children and so on? Well, my daughter's thinking of specialising. And you know what? I'm proud of her. And she should have the right to choose what she wants to do. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, we can do that in other industries. We just have to do it. And I should also add in the law... When I was a partner in a big law firm, we had two women mm. partners, and we used to tell everybody, because that was two more than most people had. Um, today, as you know, there are many women, and the more important thing is many of them have children, a husband, and so on, whereas those two had no children, mm. no husband, because they had to marry their jobs. So things do change. We need to speed it up. Mm. If you would like to ask David Gonski a question, put your hand up and uh, somebody puts a microphone in it, start talking. David, that was just absolutely inspirational. Um, I think an awful lot of people in this country today are getting really concerned about the lack of vision and the lack of leadership from both sides of politics federally. What do we have to do to actually get someone like yourself leading this country with vision and a long-term view and a long-term strategy. Every time I pick up the papers, it seems that everyone, business groups included, are really despairing that we just don't have that long-term strategy and long-term view for this country, to the point that it's seriously affecting capital investment now by a lot of companies. Well, look, I am not... Um what's the word, somebody who feels one should say, look, the politicians are bad and therefore all is bad. Um, The first thing I would say is I do believe that people are amazing who go into politics because you give up a lot. You really do. And no, I'm not intending to go into politics. I do feel, as Sally mentioned quite correctly, very strongly that the American system, there's lots bad with the American system, but one good thing is that most of the politicians have, who are in major positions, get a, a body of people from the professions, from, you know, from anything, to come and assist them and advise them. I don't understand why in Australia we don't broaden the advice required and, by the way, listen to them. And they should come and they should be asked to, you know, leave their subjectivity at the door. And like you're obviously strong and, uh, and very loving of Australia, to just come for the love of Australia. And by the way, I think they'd be packed with applicants if they asked people to do that. And I think it should be accepted, as it is in America, that if you have a good career, if you haven't given time to advising set of politicians, a, a bureau, whatever, you haven't really done your bit for the country. In terms of vision, I do believe that uh, we are entitled and should give our suggestions and work towards ideas. 
I'm just amazed in my life that anybody asked me to give advice on education and whether people like the review or not, it's there. And you have to jump over it if you don't want to implement it, and that's good. And I hope people will consider it for years to come. The previous review, as you probably know, was done in 1973. So it took a long time to get to ours. So my answer's a bit convoluted. I understand your frustration, but I think that we have to start to gently and without uh, sort of trying to knock down things, to put our ideas, particularly in areas we know a lot about, and we need to get an acceptance that Canberra shouldn't be an, I an island, nor should, for that matter, you know, the Victorian government nor the state government. They should open up to the thinking of others. And I think we should also think about Australia more than just the party systems. Uh, David, uh, coming back to your point about wealthy Australians, at one stage when I worked for Philanthropy Australia, I interviewed one of your colleagues in New South Wales who'd given a million dollars to the Holocaust Museum. And when I asked him why had he done it, he said, because I thought if I did, others would follow. Has that been your experience? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt that the best secret or not so secret weapon of fundraising is to come into someone's office or into their house and say, I'm giving this. How about you match me? How about you come along with me? Indeed, I, I sometimes find, and I get asked a lot, uh, you know, why don't you give some money? I often feel like asking, because they're quite wealthy people who often ask you, how much are you giving? But they never tell you that. I think their job is to get rather than to give. Um, so I think it's, it's a marvellous thing. And it's quite interesting, you raise, and you would have dealt with this at Philanthropy Australia. It is the Australian way, and it's a lovely way, that you don't crow about what you do. In America, you tell everybody in five seconds how many things you've done and how wonderful you are. Here, and by the way, it's particularly the case in Melbourne. In Sydney, we're much more flashy. Oh, very brash. Uh, yeah, very, very brash. brash. Yes. But you, you don't show off. But I'd put it that there are two parts to philanthropy. There is the giving of the money and there is setting the example. So yesterday we opened at my university a building named after a 91-year-old wonderful philanthropist and I actually said it to him in, our, in the speech I made that he not only gave us the money for which I'm very grateful as is our engineering faculty but also he set the bar and uh, let's hope somebody will come and give more. Interesting, actually. The own, I'm pretty sure there's only one person you actually name in this whole book that you have a real go at, and he's a journalist at The Australian, he's the arts editor, uh, for his response to a, a philanthropic a donation for a wing of the Museum of Contemporary Art, was it? in Simon Mordant. New wing, South yeah. Wales, the Simon Mordant wing, and that he wrote a a very catty kind of piece about why would you need your name on it and uh, and it made me think it, it'd be a pretty catty business this giving can't it we need a bit of a gentle hue to it David well uh, you're quite right and we've had a few other examples uh, particularly in Sydney I might say but I felt very strongly about that because Simon Mordant is a merchant banker as I am and he suddenly came out one day and said, I'm giving $15 million, which for anybody, even Mr. Gates, 
is a lot mm. of money. And I sat back and I thought, oh, I'm meant to be such a great philanthropist. That is an enormous sum of money to give. So his uh, example paid off. And I know it has increased the giving in the community of Sydney. I don't know whether it's gone further. And then t for somebody to come along and say, why is he so small that he needs a wing named after him? I would have named the whole street after him, not just the wing. <laughs> uh, Jane Reynolds Foundation, 1901. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, in relation to the review on education, much of the reason why we have to have this, this sort of review at all is because we have a Commonwealth constitution drafted mostly on the back of a boat in 1891, which of course does not raise education or health. And when we go back and read the words of Garen and, and others, um, Garen you'd know well being from Sydney, um, did, made assumptions that have not borne out to be true even in the early 1900s, let alone in 2015. Um, need we consider our constitution again and would that have made your review easier or harder? Um, look, I think that uh, the constitution itself obviously um, set up states and territories and federal what really has changed, and which was the real reason for the review, is the sharing of monies. With the coming of the GST, obviously monies didn't go all the way to the federal government, some went to the states and so on. So that's really why you need a lot of discussion on funding. Personally, I think we can live with the Constitution. I think it's a marvellous document. I we, think we're not going to have a Gonski review of the Constitution? I'm available. <laughs> um, but having said that, I mean, obviously we need from time to time to make amendments. Uh, we haven't got a great record, as you know, for passing those amendments. Um, but I hope, for example, in relation to in the Indigenous, that we will pass, we will have and pass uh, an appropriate uh, amendment. I think it's deserved and needed. Um, but in the case of education, we can work around the concept of state and federal. And coming back to the excellent point raised about vision, not even I have got the vision of getting rid of the states of Australia. What a pity. <laughs> uh, our time is up already. It's just absolutely flown and uh, you have to literally fly. David will be signing copies of his book uh, for um, a short time after we we wrap it up. Um, I'm just going to read you one sentence. I just love this sentence. It's my favourite sentence in your whole book. If you want to deal with other countries, you have to hug them. Get to know them and not be scared of them. That's just absolutely delightful, David. And uh, yeah, please give him a very, very big round of applause. And that's where we leave this week's episode of The Fifth Estate. If you'd like to hug and get to know us at the Wheeler Centre, leave us a podcast rating or review on iTunes. And don't be scared to visit wheelercentre.com. Next fortnight, Sally Warhaft digs into the issue of asylum seekers in Australia with the help of David Mann, Director of the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre, and human rights lawyer and refugee, Mariam Vezade. We hope you can join us then.